0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have someone on the show who I've been trying to get on the show for a long time who has a new book out. Dan Pfeiffer is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Yes, We Still Can and has a new book out called trumping America. I have so many questions. I breezed through the book in about four hours. I hate when people say that to me because it means I know you spent like a year on your book and someone <laughs> just read it very quickly. But uh, congratulations. It's a great book. Um, Thank you. I want to start with something that stood out to me pretty kind of halfway through the book. Um, you used to work, uh, for people that don't know, you used to work in the Obama White House. And you kind of go into some of the details of the things that happened when you were there, and there was one thing that stood out to me about how, um, when you look at the Democratic Party today, how it's kind of continues to lose in some regards, and it, and and there's lots of different things that are happening with the Republican Party and the shifts it's taking, and so on. How there was this kind of dichotomy where you had Obama that was winning, and then you had the Democratic Party that was losing at the same time. And I was wondering if you can kind of just set the stage for us about how we got to where we are today with the Democratic Party a kind of appearing to be a little bit of a mess.
1: Sure. <laughs> how do
0: I know it's a big, large question yeah, to begin? But it was the thing that stood out to me.
1: Yeah, I think the. The most important moment to understand how we got to where we are right now is not the 2016 election. It's the 2010 election. And that was the first midterm after Barack Obama was elected. And it was a perfect storm of terrible for the Democrats. You had the unemployment was hovering around 10 percent. You had, uh, you know, we were just, you know, less than two years removed from a bipartisan bank bailout that anchored the entire country. It's the one thing I mean, Democrats and Republicans have agreed on in the last ten years. And then, <laughs> right around January of 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Citizens United, which opened the floodgates to Republican money, corporate mon- that, that ruling allowed corporate, mo- corporate corporations, individuals to spend unlimited amounts, and so. You had this way, you know, sort of political wave, this money wave, and it washed Democrats out. And we lost an election that we were going to probably do poorly in any way, Just the historical trends are the first midterm is usually very painful for an incumbent president. But this was a historic loss. We lost 63 congressional seats. But most importantly, we lost seats in – we lost governorships, we lost state legislatures, and we were just clobbered. And the reason why that was so consequential was uh, this was the – De- the election that uses – this is the redistrict election, right? Every 10 years after the census, state state governments redraw congressional state legislative lines. Republicans now have the ability to draw those lines however they want, which made it incredibly challenging for Democrats to get power back. And one way to look at this is the, the – Republicans won the popular vote in the House races by about 6% in 2010 and they won 63 House seats. The Democrats in 2018 won the, won the popular vote in the House races by seven points, yet we only won 40 seats. It's because the district mm-hmm. lines have been drawn 10 years prior in a way that uh, – or eight years prior in a way that protected Republican incumbents. And that election s- caused a whole – made it just so much harder to win power back for for a decade. We're now coming up on this next election in 2020 is the one that will decide it for another 10 years, which is one of the many, many reasons why it is uh, so important that for Democrats that we win. And that, that combined with – now then you take in the traumatic loss of 2016 that no one expected has caused everyone the Democratic Party from leadership to voters to – question their own instincts, not know what to trust, not have any concept of what strategies necessarily work. We are in a particularly divided place heading into this election against Trump.
0: Well, one thing you talk about is that there's kind of uh, – what, which I found – Really fascinating is there's kind of all these different approaches to the party, and you have you know you have the far left version of the party, you have the the moderates, you have the Republicans turned Democrats, you have the triangulation that Clinton used to do, you have all these different things, and. I don't – like when I look at the Republican Party, sure, there's like the George Conways of the world that that vehemently hate Trump, but they're still Republicans, and they're still going to vote Republican in Senate races and so on and so forth. When I look at the Democratic Party, it's like I don't necessarily know what it is, and and I'm curious if you have an idea of how it can solve its own problems that it's almost created. It's, it's like someone said to me that it's almost like the, the party that eats its own. It's like if you – you know, you may support health care and equal rights, but you're not a fan of abortion. And therefore, like anyone who finds out who's a Democrat thinks you're not a Democrat and they hate you and they come after you and so on and so forth. And I'm just curious what you think is an approach that the party can take to kind of – to to figure out what it is really.
1: Well, it's important to understand the differences between the Republican and the Democratic Party. The Republican Party agrees on more things because – they are much more similar. It's a much more homogenous voter base. It is almost entirely white. It is uh, mostly male and it lives predominantly in the south and the up- and the plain states in some of the Midwest and that is the Republican Party. There, I mean there were two versions of the Republican Party. They were quote-unquote Rockefeller Republicans or liberal Northeast Republicans. There were Southern Republicans. But – demographic change uh, sort of the rabidness of the tea party base have pushed out everyone other than sort of what we think of as a hardcore trump republican and with susan collins probably being the last existing person who uh, would be qualify as a northeastern republican and she even she is forced by the powers of the be in the party to do exactly what trump would like with the democrats they have this other challenge which is our party is much more diverse In terms of race, in terms of economic background, in terms of geography, it is our task at election time is we have to turn out a whole bunch of different coalitions, including people who may not vote very often. So that makes it much harder. And we have, in order to win, because of the way the electoral college works and the way the Senate works, in order to have power, Democrats have to appeal to a large number of voters who are more conservative than the median Democratic voter. And so it leads – like we we have always been a little bit messy and always tried to be a big tent and that's where we are now. I do think those problems tend to resolve themselves when you have power. Like we certainly weren't perfect and you know Joe Manchin was still a Democrat when Joe Biden was pres- – or when Barack Obama and Joe Biden were in the White House. But the party really fell, fell in line. There was not a lot you know, legislatively of people breaking with the president on core initiatives like – you know, preserving the Affordable Care Act or passing Wall Street Reform, and so it always looks like a mess right before you have power. I mean, you think about what the Republican Party looked like at this point in 2016, and once they had it power, unified. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when you, you know, you just said something that you, you talk a lot about in the book is that the. Republican Party is a predominantly white, homogenous group of people that are older, that live in specific states. They make up, they do not even remotely make up a majority of this country anymore. And yet they continue to hold so much power. They continue to control the courts. They continue to control the Senate. You know, they, uh, it just is astounding. And right. and the White House, of course. And I know they, you know, Trump didn't win the popular vote, but but it seems like They are just better at politics than the Democrats. Would you say that's right or is it just that something else has happened?
1: Well, I think it's two things. Um, One is they have a structural political advantage in that the Senate and the Electoral College are – disproportionately represent white voters. Just because uh, just because a very white state like Wyoming that is quite small has the same number of senators as a very large and very diverse state like California. And the way the population is distributed, it, the only path to 270 for – 270 electoral votes for Democrats requires winning states like Wisconsin that are much whiter than the nation is – than the nation on average is. And so that is a problem we have in this book, I argue, that Democrats have to take on – those structural impediments to progressive power if we're going to succeed. But the other thing that's happened is Republicans have ruthlessly exploited their advantages here. And because they know exactly what you just said, which is that with every passing day, the country gets younger, it gets more diverse, and it gets more progressive. And the in the vote in the Republican base becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall American electorate. So they have there were two options for them. One would be to develop an agenda that was more broadly appealing, that, that well, it was more welcoming to the Latino community, to African-Americans, to women, or double down on their white base, which is what they did uh, with Trump essentially. And But the only way that works is if you do things that specifically limit the power of voters of color. And by that, I'm referring to uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering, and like the way to think about this is: Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by seven points in Wisconsin in 2012. In 2016, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by less than a point, but he got fewer votes than Mitt Romney did in 2016. And so, then in 2012, and that is in large part because of a very specific effort by Scott Walker and the Republicans, put through voter idea laws through getting rid of, you know, other other policies to make it easier for people to vote, to target, to suppress the vote. And, you know, we've seen this all across the country. It's been happening everywhere. And that is is giving them an advantage. Where Democrats, I think, are, have made an error here is that we have not been as aggressive in fighting back against those anti-democratic efforts as we need to be. And when we have power, we have not been as aggressive at, Putting in place laws that we believe are the right thing to do, but also help increase our political power by not just getting rid of the voter ID law, but passing a very aggressive voter expansion effort, like going to vote by mail or automatic voter registration, or um, you know, or same day registration. There are all these things that we have to do to be to more aggressively take to not only undo the work that the Republicans have done, but to go be, to go beyond it and have an agenda that that is more democratic small d. And the reason that's important is we have the majority of voters. We need to have a politics that reflects the majority of voters if we want to have the progressive policies we care about.
0: One thing that is kind of astounding when you when you see it in the book kind of laid out next to each other is, you know, when you're talking about the gerrymandering that, that goes on and, and the Republicans' Just blatancy around it, you know. You've got this quote from Republican Congressman Glenn Grotham, who, who says, you know, now that we have vo- uh, photo ID, I, I, you know, I think we're, we're it's going to make a difference in in voting. Like we're going to win as Republicans. You got other folks um, from Pennsylvania and so on saying, you know, uh, voter ID laws will help us help us win the state, and it's like so utterly blatant. And the thing that I I guess maybe. Having not worked in politics, mm-hmm. maybe it, it makes it more difficult for me to kind of understand and comprehend. But why is there – why do you think there isn't more of a backlash and there isn't more responsibility when people do and say things like this from the Republican Party? And and it's being so blatantly A, racist and B, undemocratic. Like why is the country OK
1: with it? it I think th- it's hard to get people to focus on process issues like these just generally. And so that's one. And two, I do think Democrats have not done, up until recently at least, a good enough job of making a political argument against voter suppression. We have spent a lot of time and energy and resources fighting the legal battle against voter suppression and have overturned or limited a lot of these laws and had some of the the maps, the gerrymandered maps thrown out. But we haven't made the public case. And And in the book, I make arguments about why it's important that we do that and how it can fit into a broader message about why you – know, who republicans want to have political power if they don't want you to have it. It's that they want – this is how they're going to continue to help corporations and wealthy people on Wall Street. It's by keeping you out of the process. I think we have to do that. Uh, but yeah, it is a um, – it like when you look at it, both the facts of it that there's – the the entire – you know the putative reason for these voter ID laws is voter fraud and there's Literally no evidence of, voter, of in-person voter fraud ever happening and then you have these you know, less than sharpest knives in the drawer of Republicans who say the quiet part out loud and admit what we all know to be true, which is the real purpose of these laws. And, you know, there's some examples of how absurd they are. Like the one that always strikes me is that in Texas, which has a, is the you – know, Texas is the tip, of the tip of the spear in the Republican nightmare about uh, the country getting bluer. It's get you know it's both demographically getting more diverse, but also um, you know a lot of Democrats are moving into Texas and living in their cities and in their suburbs, and it's how we almost it's why we almost won the Senate seat there in 2018. But so Texas has this very arduous voter voter ID law. But in Texas, in Texas, if you don't have your have a driver's license, you can vote with your concealed carry gun permit, like that counts. <laughs> but. If you are a student at a Texas university, your student ID would will not be accepted as proof of identification for voting, which is not subtle in any It's the most way American you thing I've
0: ever heard in my life. Yeah.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Um, All right. One thing I want to ask about is, and this is the part in your book where my blood starts to boil and um, just saying his name out loud makes me uh, want to put my fist through a wall, is uh, shithead Mitch McConnell, um, who I think is one of the most despicable human beings uh, in America today. When you kind of lay out all the things he's done and how proud he is of the fact that he um, has essentially kind of hijacked the Senate and and our democracy, I, I... I don't know I, if if he was like a Democrat and it was and and it was flipped around. Don't you think we would be like, this is pretty messed up. I don't think this should be this should be okay. Or like, how does he get away with it? It just it boggles my mind that he he's so blatant, he's so vile, and he he just essentially has hijacked the government for his own purposes. I just don't understand how he gets away with it.
1: He, you know, he, I think Mitch McConnell is the person most responsible for Donald Trump being president, both for helping him win that election by stealing the Supreme Court seat and being able to use that as incentive to get Republicans who were skeptical of Trump to vote for Trump by helping cover up the fact that the Russians were trying to specifically help elect Trump by just creating the culture of cynicism with the, in the Republican Party that will allow someone like Trump to emerge. And I think he is – truly one of the worst people in all of American political history. The reason he gets away with it is twofold. One, he happens to be a Republican living in, in, a, in a safe Republican state. Kentucky is one of the whitest states in the entire country. Um, and so he he doesn't face political pressure at home in any way, shape, or form. Although he does have an election coming up this year and will face a very and he's got the challenge.
0: lowest – yeah, he's, isn't he like the lowest-rated uh, senator uh, – Right now, or yes. something like that. Yeah, he
1: is. Yeah, the people of Kentucky do not like him. He is very unpopular there. Whether well, that we, means well, we
0: all have that in common with them. That's then. right.
1: That's right. <laughs> that's right. Whether that means he will lose in a you know very Republican state in a highly polarized presidential election year is an open question. So, but that's why he's been able to get away with this date. The other way is he basically has figured out how to work the media, which is he doesn't pretend to be someone he isn't right? There's no story the the political media likes to cover more than hypocrisy, right? You know, Barack Obama, you said you were going to be the most transparent president in history and you did these nine things, but what about the 10th thing, right? McConnell just basically lays it out there for the world and says, I am a cynical asshole, and therefore the press views everything that Mitch McConnell does as in It's consistent, right? He is consistently a cynical asshole, and I mean, I always get blown away when I read the stories about it. It's like, Look at this brilliant way Mitch McConnell did this terrible thing as opposed to writing a story about the terrible thing that he did. And that is – he and the thing Thing I would point I would is very important is a lot of the Republican leaders of this era aren't that sharp, right? Trump, for all of his marketing skill in understanding of the media, is not a particularly strategic human being. John Boehner and Paul Ryan, oh, I, the- not super sharp, but Mitch McConnell is – like he is a supervillain.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always been astounded by the fact of, you know, when I've been – when I started working on uh, political stories over the last three years and have spent time with senators and uh, both Republicans and Democrats, like I've I've been so shocked at how not that smart they are, driven without question. Uh, um, Some of them are, are, you know – Are brilliant when it comes to i mean specifically trump i will give him credit for this he is absolutely brilliant when it comes to marketing and manipulating the media but most of them are not that bright and yet it does seem like as you say mitch mcconnell is one question i have is you know i sometimes lay in bed at night thinking about all of these terrible people and all these terrible things they do and and i i wonder if if you know they get to go to the grave without ever suffering suffering any repercussions do you think that there will ever be repercussions for someone like Mitch McConnell or you know, some of the Republicans who have just cowered to Trump and let him get away with the immigration policies that he has and so on? Is this just like part and parcel of it that they, they get away with this for the rest of their lives?
1: I mean, typically they get away with it, right? The, I mean, almost some of the worst Republicans or worst politicians end up just at a lobbying firm down the street and have a quite lucrative life after they leave. You know, I think – like you'd separate the people who have been in the Trump administration who may actively have been involved in criminal activity from people who are just doing horrible but mostly legal things like Mitch McConnell. And I don't know that Mitch McConnell will ever suffer the fate he will have. I think it's – I really hope that – and we can't control – as democrats, we can't control how other republicans will treat Mitch McConnell or Stephen Miller for instance when they leave. But as Democrats, we can do everything we can to not normalize them after they are gone and continue talking about what they did in their time, right? And I think it's a, like I, that's how I certainly feel about Paul Ryan, um, who's one of my least favorite people on the planet, um, is that you, that you have to continue to hold them accountable. But I, I wish we lived in a world where people would finally say, like, you did this horrible thing, you're going to be um, sort of excised from you know, polite society or will continually have to – you have to face, you know, some sort of public accountability for what you did. That has not happened with the possible exception – you know, every Trump person who has left has gone on to have a very lucrative career at corporations or on the board of Fox or whatever else without really facing it other than Sean Spicer who had to go embarrass himself on Dancing with the Stars um, to make a living. So he would be the one, the one exception of the one Trump person who uh, faced some measure of Public embarrassment for his time in the White House.
0: Uh, last question about the Republican Party, and and then I kind of want to move on to the to the the core of your book, which yeah. is you know about how we can win, uh, even though I don't think we will. But um, <laughs> is <laughs> what? So as we move forward, and you know, you said that the that the Republican Party had a choice, um, and they chose to kind of double down on the kind of racist, all white uh, version of themselves. When you look at forward ten years, five years, twenty years as the 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 young kids that are, you know, we have more diversity in in the country uh, and and th- those folks come of age, um, where we have more progressive thinking in the country and those folks come of age, what happens in your opinion to the Republican Party in the future?
1: I think the only way that we will ever see a reformed Republican party, is by both beating – by beating them repeatedly and undoing the advantages that they have either because they passed laws that gave themselves advantages or they're benefiting from an unintended consequence of the things the founders did like the current state of the Senate and you you basically have – you have to beat them because we – like we think well the Republican voters are getting older and they are and they are but also – The younger white voters in rural parts of the country are rabid Trump fans. And so like there are people coming up who will replace them. And so if we can do the things it takes to force them to have to appeal to a majority of Americans to have political success, then they will have to soften their positions on a whole number of issues. And I think that's why undoing some of these voter suppression laws is so important because if Texas ever becomes a reliably blue state, or even a battleground state in presidential elections, they could be locked out of the White House for generations, and that could force reform mm-hmm. within the party. But the, it's like there's no younger group of Republican politicians who are advocating for another path. In fact, the younger group are actually worse than the older group because they can't, they are they have e- fit more easily into the Trump culture within politics.
0: Oh, that's really um, uh, great to hear. Yeah, yeah. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: All right, so one question I have uh, when it comes to the election uh, that we're now in the midst of is that it feels like, and I've always wondered this, and you do go, go into it in the book. Uh, um, it feels like the the, the Republicans are like. This is a knife fight, and I'm bringing I'm bringing a gun. I'm bringing a knife. I'm bringing every single thing I have. Like you have the whole section you talk about where um, Facebook plus Fox equals fucked. You have this whole. Um, you know, look at the way we, the Democrats, have approached. I mean, you look at just what Trump's is doing right now. If you go on, there was a great story in The Atlantic, I think it was a, a week or two ago, where a reporter went on, created a new Facebook account, uh, followed Donald Trump, and then saw how every ad that came at him was just I mean, mostly lies, honestly. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was this targeted um, thing. And, and yet, it doesn't feel like, the Democrats do that. Do you think that the Democrats should play dirty or is it always the like Michelle Obama, we should go high when they go low? Because it doesn't necessarily feel like that part's working either.
1: I don't think playing dirty in like a Trumpian way, I call it in the book by being a paler shade of orange, that will not work for Democrats because we have a different political strategy, which is we have to, in order to win, we have to inspire people who are have never voted before or who were previously turned off of the process and get them back in. And and republicans don't have to do that. They don't – they're not looking for one new additional voter in a lot of these states. They're just trying to turn out their core base and keep our base from turning out. So we can't do what they do. But I think we can learn some lessons from what they have done and do – and we can do some things differently that are stronger and tougher and more strategic without losing who we are as democrats. that requires really becoming more comfortable with doing things that increase our own political power. Democrats have a, a real reticence about political power. We almost feel dirty doing it. Like It's cheating to do something that is legal but would make it more likely that a Democrat would win an election, like passing a very aggressive voter expansion law or enfranchising new voters or a, messing with the Supreme Court or making like – the example I gave in the book is – Every Democrat believes that Washington, D.C. should be a state. It absolutely should be a state. It makes zero sense that it's not. We were always hesitant to do something about it because it felt like dirty pool because it, D.C. is as the most democratic part of the country. Hillary Clinton got nine in 10 votes there in 2016. So it would obviously be two Democratic senators right away. So we haven't done it. And that is to our great loss. If we had had – if D.C. was a state, there would have been witnesses in the impeachment trial. There would We would have defeated – uh, more of Trump's legislation. We could have passed passed more legislation when we have a Democratic president, but we don't do those things because we're too nervous. And that is what I think is the biggest difference between Republicans and Democrats, which is Democrats view political power as a means to a policy end. We're gonna win this election so that we can pass health care or we can pass climate change legislation or gun control, all of which we should definitely do. But Republicans believe that political power is an end in and of itself and that everything they do is designed to give themselves more political power. Sometimes like with a giant tax cut that benefits their donors, that also scratches you know, an ideological or policy itch, but they would not do that if it didn't have – if it didn't help them win another election. And so we have to learn that mentality that you can't do any of the policy things that we want to do if you don't have political power, so we have to focus on how we can have spend as much time figuring out how we can have political power as what we would do when we have that power.
0: You talk a lot about um, the need to kind of fix the Senate um, in the book, and um, and to, of course, you know, get control of it back. Um, and And I'm curious if you can go into that a little bit. First of all, how how you imagine fixing it, but also. Um, if you believe that the Democrats can get it back, I mean, it seems like there's there's probably I mean, look, this is this is one of the most important elections probably uh, in the past few decades. Given that you know uh, they could get one or two more uh, Republicans on the in the Supreme Court, but it also feels like sure, okay, if Trump wins again, but we get the Senate back, like there's not much he's really going to be able
1: to do. Um, go into that a little bit. I think we can. We very we have a great opportunity to take the Senate back in 2020. Um, there's a bunch of Senate seats happening, Senate races happening in states that Democrats expect to do particularly well in in the presidential election. Most notably, Colorado and Maine, but also Arizona will be probably as close as it's ever been. And so we have real shots there. We only have to defend one tough seat, and that is um, Doug Jones in Alabama. So it it like. Is it probable we'll take the Senate back? It really depends on how well we do at the top of the ticket, because in presidential election years, the close races tend to tip in the direction of the party that wins the White House. Um so but it is very possible here. But what it speaks to is just how hard the Senate is for Democrats. We you know, we briefly had 60 votes when Obama was president. We will never have 60 votes again. That will not happen for another century, at least mm-hmm. under current the current construction. It's just the Democrat right now, this a like this is a, a statistic that sort of blows my mind. But it right now, it is mathematically possible for eighteen percent of the United States population to re, to control a majority of the United States Senate. And so, and and that that is a trend that benefits Republicans. That trend is getting worse as as blue states are getting more populous and red states are getting less populous. And so, if we want to pass any legislation. I'm not talking like Medicare for all or Green New Deal. I'm talking about like naming a post office after a democrat or you know or <laughs> something as simple as you know it, like universal background checks polls at 90%. There is zero chance if if our if the things that we want to do depend on getting 8 to 10 republicans to agree with us, they will never become law. And so that is why step 1 We have to get rid of the filibuster. Um, Like there is real risk in that because there will be times in which we don't control the Senate, and bad laws will pass. But I would much rather live in a world where we have a chance to pass our legislation and we can hold Republicans accountable for passing theirs than they can pass laws and we can't.
0: One of the things that that like one criticism, and look, I know you worked in the White House um, with Obama, but one of the criticisms. When you look at the Obama administration is we did have. We had sixty sixty seats. And could have changed everything. But everyone was like so concerned with, oh, well, we should, you know, we've got to do what the country wants. And it's like, why then didn't didn't we take and just literally change it all? like set up everything to work for the Democrats?
1: Well, I so I, I think it's worth noting that that period, we only had sixty votes for a brief period because of the death of Ted Kennedy because what got us a 60 was after after many, many months into the presidency, Arlen Specter, Republican senator, became a Democrat. That was the 60th vote. And then Ted Kennedy died at the end of 2009. Um, so it was a very brief period where we had it. And we did – even in that period when we had 59 votes, we passed – that's the, the period of the greatest amount of progressive legislation since Lyndon Johnson was president, Wall Street Reform. The ACA, uh, equal pay law, um, FDA regulation of tobacco, the largest middle class tax cut in history, a whole raft of things were done. We absolutely could have done more. But it's also worth re- – just the thing that I, th- I always try to remind people when they look back at that period is when we say we had 60 Democratic senators, we had uh, Joe Lieberman who was the reason why we didn't – is the primary reason we didn't end up getting a public option. In medic in the Affordable Care Act, we had two two Democratic senators from Arkansas, a Democratic senator from Louisiana, two Democrats from North Dakota, one from South Dakota, one from Indiana, one from Alaska. So it was a very uh, one from two from West Virginia. You know, we, this was a very different Democratic party and a much more conservative one. And so people are often like, "Well, why didn't you pass immigration reform?" And in that period, and it's like I wish we had and there was barely 50 votes for immigration reform, let alone 60. Same thing with climate change in the United States. We, in fact, we couldn't even pass the, uh, the DREAM Act with that Democratic Senate because it lost by one vote because Republicans filibustered it. The thing that – the argument would have been we should have gotten rid of the filibuster. And like that is a thing you go back and look at and say, which wasn't even something that anyone was even contemplating back then. Which is where I think what this book is largely about is we have to – now we have to recognize what we what we actually have to do to get things done and that it holding – if you hold on to norms and traditions, the Republicans are going to kick our ass. And so we have to take on the big fights and look for big structural political change to get things done. And so filibuster is one. The other – you said what else we do in the Senate. Definitely make D.C. a state. I think if the – Uh, People of Puerto Rico who are American citizens were to decide that they want to become a state because it should be up to them. Like we can't – because some of them don't agree that they should be a state. They want independence. But if they were to decide that they should be a state, we should make them a state. I mean the absurdity of Puerto Rico's political situation is that if you're an American citizen – Puerto Ricans are American citizens. A Puerto Rican who lives in Puerto Rico cannot vote. If that Puerto Rican moves to Florida and lives there for like 30 days, they can vote in this presidential election. And so that seems crazy, right? So we should, if they want to be a state, we should make them a state.
0: Do you think? What do you think the chances are of, of any of those three things happening?
1: I think the it's going to depend on which Democrat wins. Um, how because right now of the may of the primary Democrats who are still on this debate stage, uh, Warren and Buttigieg support getting rid of the filibuster. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden do not. And Michael Bloomberg, I think, said he would be for the filibuster, but I would be surprised if he would make that a priority. I think they would all – You, everything flows from the filibuster, right? Because if you get rid of the filibuster you would have, and you have the Senate, you would have 50 votes to pass. It only takes 50 votes to pass to make D.C. a state. If you don't get rid of the filibuster, you will be unable to make D.C. a state. Puerto Rico, I think, is a longer-term project and it depends entirely on the people of Puerto Rico.
0: Is there a way you could get rid of the filibuster and then put it back?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I would have 50 votes to do it. Uh, so, yes, yeah, yeah. you can undo it and put it right back if you if you technically wanted to.
0: Sounds like something the Republicans do and the Democrats wouldn't.
1: Right. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: One of the things that has that I worry about the most around the Trump administration is not necessarily – the things that we've seen happen in broad daylight but but you know what mcconnell has done I think, what is it a, a thousand judges is that right that, that they've put in um, something like that yes some of them are just so unqualified so bigoted uh it just is astounding how do do you think well first of all i guess and you talk about this in the book i know but but i'd love to hear you talk about it a little here is like a do you think that what do you think the repercussions are going to be of this and B, how do we put – how do we fix this? I mean because these are judges that in some respects are going to be there for the rest of our lives um, and uh, and I'm just curious what your, what
1: your approach would be there. Yeah, this, the, the Republican packing of the courts or stacking of the courts is the longest term problem for progressives because let's say we win all the elections. We do everything else I recommend in this book. We get rid of the filibuster, we make D.C. a state, we get rid of gerrymandering, we're passing voting laws, and we control political power in this country. But if you don't deal with the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, there's going to be a conservative veto on progressive policies for decades. And the thing that scares me more than almost anything else when I talk about the impact of this era on American political life is when Brett Kavanaugh, who is the justice that – who's place on the court makes it more likely that the court will move in very conservative, very political – Republican political directions. When Brett Kavanaugh is the age that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is today, my daughter will be 32 years old and she turns two in May. So we have signed ourselves up for three decades of Brett Kavanaugh. The next two oldest justices on the court after Ruth Bader Ginsburg are also – the next – I'm sorry. The next oldest justice on the court after Ruth Bader Ginsburg is also a Democrat – or not a Democrat, a, a liberal appointed by Bill Clinton. And all the Republicans are much, much younger and they will be there for a very long time. And so we – what I think we have to do and it's much easier than people imagine is if you – there is nothing that says the number of justices must be nine. That The number is nowhere in the constitution. Yeah. We have changed historically in the 19th century, changed the number of justices many times, and in fact, very specifically, the court changed the number of ju- reduced the number of justices to ensure that impeached but not removed President Andrew Johnson couldn't add more justices to the court, which seems to me like a relevant historical example for this situation. And so, I like I very very much believe that if the Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they get rid of the filibuster. They should add to Supreme Court justices. Then the second thing that I think is a bigger long-term project is we should put term limits are on federal judgeships, Supreme Court included. The idea of the lifetime appointment seemed like it makes sense to remove that. That judges serve are not serving at the pleasure of the president who appoints them, right? Like that would be uh, you know very problematic, I imagine, both in in reality and perception. But when you were putting justices on the court, judges and justices on the court at an older age and they were serving you know, 10 years or even 20 years, that was one thing. But now that they're serving 40 years, in some cases they could serve 50 years, that is I think a gigantic problem. And it, what it means is it creates this disconnect between the politics and the morality and the social mores of the country at the time and – the views of the justices who are appointed, right? Because they exist long after the country decided to put the person who chose them in the White House. And this is particularly egregious in this case since the majority of Americans did not pick the person who appointed Gorsuch and Kavanaugh to the court. And then so looking at a way in which you could do term limits, which raises some potential constitutional questions, but there are some potential workarounds where you would put a uh, after a certain number of years, a judge would go on senior status. So they'd still technically be a federal judge, but they would not be ruling on cases on a daily basis and could be brought it back in to break a tie or in a situation where there was not a quorum because of a vacancy or conflict of interest from the sitting judges. But I think the whole system would be healthier if um, we, we put term some, some version of term limits into the courts. But the first and most important thing to do is to right the wrong of Mitch McConnell. Stealing the the Supreme Court vacancy that Barack Obama should have been able to fill, back in 2016.
0: It's it still just sends a uh, anger through my veins when you say that. It and and his the pride in which he gives himself for that is just it's just astounding. It's honestly just truly astounding. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and you put it in the book too. He, you know, he, he he his argument back then was, oh well, I don't think we should have a. Uh, um we should let a potential outgoing president decide. And then now he says somebody just recently asked him, you know, if he would if he would do it with, you know, Trump in 2020. He said, Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's a it's just a joke to him.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I
0: know you I, I know you think Paul Ryan's the worst person on earth. I I definitely think Mitch McConnell. Uh, yeah,
1: is, no, uh, let me be clear. I, I Paul Ryan makes <laughs> me the most angry, but Mitch McConnell is by far the worst, most uh Damaging person uh, in American yes. politics. For yeah,
0: sure. that's a good. That's yeah. a good. I, you, I love your Paul Ryan rant at the yes. at the end of the book. Um, all right, so uh, a, a couple of last questions for you. Um, so uh, one thing is when I, I'm in the media, you you have your podcast and you write these books, and one thing that I don't understand, and I'm I'm a victim and I am guilty of this just as much as everyone is that we all kind of. When Trump does things for attention, we all kind of fall for it. And I will give myself credit. I don't I don't tweet. I don't follow him on Twitter anymore. I don't retweet him. I don't quote tweet him. I don't retweet anyone that's tweeting about his moronic thing that day because I think it's all part of the plan, right? However, you know— most people are still on there, you know, doing the same thing that they were doing four years ago, thinking that it's going to have some shock and outrage when he says something and they share it on social media or or CNN covers it or MSNBC or something like that, or it's written about in The Times or The Post. What would the approach be, or what should the approach be to cover this president? Uh, I know you have you, you talk a, a lot about, like, fake news and, mm-hmm. and how— you know, each individual should be their own newsroom and and trying to trying to get the the, the news across to people um, it, in their social circles. But, but what is what should the national approach be? You know, I think one thing that is has become so evidently clear uh, from the Republican side is that you know they've got the presidency, they've got the Senate, they've got Fox News and and Limbaugh and all these all these people. There's an there's an there's a group that surrounds each other. It's almost like a panopticon, and, and it works really, really well. And I'm just curious, like, what you think that the, the the opposite side of that should be. Should it be covering the things he does and says or
1: not? It, this is a really hard question because the Democrats, like political democratic operatives or politicians and liberal voters – we, we put the mainstream media up on this pedestal, right? We believe it's the fourth estate. It's the it's supposed to hold politicians accountable. It's supposed to be the group that calls balls and strikes and separates fact from fiction. And you know, we have a very uh, all-the-president's-men view of the press. And what I have tried to do for myself is disabuse myself of that notion, which is to recognize that the – Like there is a ton of great journalism out there and maybe more great journalism than there has ever been, particularly coming from The Times and The Post, which have I think revitalized themselves in a pretty impressive way in recent years. Um, And then a lot of uh, journalism coming from new outlets, right, that that didn't exist before doing this stuff. But ultimately – they are businesses and Trump is good business. And I, that doesn't mean that they give Trump favorable coverage for that, but they're responding to what their readers want, right? Because, and they have this very intimate view of what their readers want now because of, you know, it's what is referred to sometimes as chartbeat journalism where they look at the uh, the site Chartbeat, which tells you which which of your articles get traffic and the Trump stuff gets traffic. And so I don't know, like... I don't know how to try to explain to the press that they should cover – not do, cover the things that Trump says and does because he is the president of the United States. And is even his most insane tweets often lead to policy, a deeply dangerous policy. But like there's a whole group of people in the White House who like reverse engineer the things he say to try to turn them into something real. What I think the the press could do better … Is, and some do it better than others, but is take a step back and appreciate and write about the absurdity of the thing he's doing, right? Like I do think they've been beaten mm. down by the moment. Like these like this past week, uh, President Trump fired the acting director of national intelligence, who is a career intelligence professional, and replaced him with a political loyalist with zero experience in intelligence. And the headline in at least the Washington Post story that I said is Trump makes unconventional pick for Intel head, right? It's like, yes, it's unconventional. (laughs) But an unconventional pick would be a Democrat or not a political loyalist who – known to traffic in conspiracy theories who once had a secret under the table deal with a corrupt Moldovian politician, right? Like like, you – I think we –
0: The headline should be Trump makes batshit decision – uh, on DNI director,
1: right? It's, yeah, it's it's just yeah. it's like you got to call it out for what it is and yeah. be more specific about it and stop trying to fit Trump into your conception of a what a normal president is. And I think the biggest thing, and th- and I don't think this is necessarily a thing that's going to fix itself at a lot of media outlets is there still continues to be too much or most media outlets continue to prize balance over accuracy. And if you prize accuracy over balance, you cannot be, quote, unquote, balanced because Trump – we've never had a president who lied as much as Trump. We've never had a party who has been as cynical and disingenuous as this Republican party, particularly under Trump. And so if you're trying to tell, quote, unquote, both sides of the story or be, quote, unquote, fair – then you're automatically being unfair because you're not calling out just how insane the things they're doing are. And it. And my New Year's resolution to myself this year was to spend less time yelling about the media on Twitter and on my podcast because I don't think it's necessarily a hugely fixable problem, or at least it's not a problem that I can fix. I don't think we are like three oh, of I, my I, I tweets can. away from Dean Bakay writing better headlines. Um, so I'm going to try to focus my energy in other places.
0: No, I think. Look, I worked at the Times for for many, many, many years, and and I think that there, some of the philosophies that exist—not just at the Times, but in journalism in general—are, oh, you have to be unbiased. You have to you have to offer that fair and balanced quote. I remember, you know, writing stories, and editors would say, "Go get a, go find me a quote of someone that says the opposite of of this quote," and it's like. And I, I, it makes – it made sense for an, a period of time where people got one newspaper. Right. Right? And it showed up on their door in the morning and you wanted – but now people get 500 different viewpoints from 500 different sources. And I think that it's like how can you – there are certain things that I think that you shouldn't – that you should cover with the absurdity of that they need to be covered. And, right. um uh, I think the I think the media has a a long way to go before it catches up to the world we live in
1: today. Yeah, I agree with that.
0: So, okay, so uh, two last questions for you. The first is I, I was a little bit kind of happily taken aback by the fact that it seemed like you know you write this letter to whoever could win in 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 twenty twenty and in the book, and uh, it felt like you were like it's a pretty good chance you're not going to win. <laughs> And I've, I have felt for quite a long time, I've traveled the country for work and, and met uh, Trump supporters and, um, you know, all over, and, and I have felt for quite a while that Trump is going to win in 2020. Do you think that, you know, just realistically, I know it's not the popular opinion, I watched the debates last week and we'll watch them next week and this, that, and the other, and it just doesn't feel like anyone on that stage can beat him. Do you think anyone can? I think everyone
1: on that stage can beat him. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very winnable election. Now, we should be clear-eyed about the fact that incumbents usually win, and incumbents in strong economies have always won. We should be clear-eyed about the fact that Trump has a massive structural advantage. He has been uh, advertising aggressively uh, digitally for three years now. I mean, he started his re-election committee campaign five hours after he was sworn in as president, which... You know, Obama got in a lot of trouble and got people argue with him because he started his in April of the year before the election and Trump's – so Trump has an extra two and a half years to do this. The So it is winnable and it is winnable in part because Trump still remains quite unpopular and his approval rating is below the number he needs to win in a lot of states to get to 270 and it's just this – our country is so polarized that no matter who we have as our nominee is going to be with it start within spitting distance of the win number. Now, the last mile is the longest and there's a lot of things we have to do to win. But we certainly can win. But if you were to say right now, I would say right now that Trump is at, at is at least a slight favorite to win. But I think the Democrats can can beat him. And who do you think this is my last question for you,
0: um who do you think a is going to be the nominee? And I know, look, we're, we're only a few states yep. in right now. But A, who do you think is going to be the nominee? And B, who do you think will be – would have the best chance of actually beating him?
1: I don't know the answer to the second question. And I, I change my mind seven times a day on that. Um, and I think it's kind of an unknowable question uh, because you just yep. – Like running in a primary is very different than running in a general. The skills that make you good in a primary may not translate as well to a general. And you also don't – we also don't know what voters are going to care the most about in November. Like in 2008, Obama's very cool, calm demeanor was seen as a huge weakness for much of that campaign. And then the economy collapsed around us and his cool, calm demeanor was seen as a huge leadership asset. And so – a lot of things are going to happen between now and then and certain – like if there was an international incident, maybe Joe Biden's experience would be seen as a huge asset in, then in a way it isn't seen as now or something happens in the economy may help a Sanders or a Warren have a better shot or something like that. So I don't know who's the best. I have until – my vote in California, so I have until March 3rd to figure it out. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to avail myself of the next two weeks. I think um, as we as we sit here – Today and we're recording this uh, before the South Carolina primary, and that Bernie Sanders is the overwhelming favorite to be the nominee. He has the clearest path. He has the uh, he is strong in the states with the most delegates, and the the field is still so big that the if if there were such a thing as an, a a non Bernie majority of Democratic voters, they will not co. They do not appear to be headed towards coalescing around a candidate. In time for that to make a difference, and he's being aided a lot by Michael Bloomberg being in the race and sucking up, you know, fifteen to twenty points that might might have gone to an Amy Klobuchar or a Joe Biden or a Pete Buttigieg. And so, if I were betting money, I would certainly bet, uh, and you probably wouldn't even get very good odds on it. But that Bernie will be the Democratic nominee.
0: And do you think he can beat Trump? Or you? I I do. I do think he can.
1: What happens? You do. I, I do. He is. He has real right. challenges, and the label of democratic socialism is gonna uh, take potentially take some states like Florida off the map for him. That might be there for other Democrats, but he also has strengths. He is the only Democrat who's demonstrated ability to compete financially with Trump. He already has a nationwide political network. He's organized in all fifty states before. Um, he's got a passionate supporter base. So he he has strengths too. So I I do believe I am not one of those Democrats who believes. Bernie cannot win. I believe he can win. How he navigates his challenges will determine whether he wins or not. But he certainly can win.
0: Well, this will be—it'll be, be interesting. I mean, I feel like I feel like this has been uh, this this primary season has been like seventy-five years long. I know. So, uh, I, I, I it just doesn't stop. It's like every week there's a new thing and. Anyway, your book was really, really, really Um, eye-opening. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Uh, My guest today is Dan Pfeiffer, Uh, Untrumping America, a plan to make America a democracy again. I hope that some of the things you write about in here actually come true. So fingers crossed, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you.
0: Thanks to my guest this week, Dan Pfeiffer. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you for taking the time to listen this week. We will see you all next week.